0: From across the globe, from the centre of aerospace, and now to you.
1: Thank you for downloading the Aero Society podcast from the Royal Aeronautical Society. The Royal Aeronautical Society operates four divisions and over 60 branches throughout the UK and around the world. If you're involved or interested in aviation and aerospace, find out about your nearest branches, activities, and events go to www.aerosociety.com We are proud to present the following lecture from the 2012 Named Lecture Series. The Named Lecture Series honours distinguished aeronautical pioneers and offers a platform to high-profile speakers representing all sectors of the aeronautical and space community. All content published by the Royal Aeronautical Society is subject to our website Terms of Use. Visit aerosociety.com for more information, thank you all for coming. This is the uh, uh, going to be an excellent talk on Curiosity, the um, uh, the next Mars rover. It's being given tonight by Matt Wallace, who's the lead system engineer on the uh, on the program, based at NASA's JPL in um, in Pasadena, California. So, um, without further ado, then it's over to um, to Matt Thanks. to
0: give us the talk. I have to turn my phone off as well, there we go. Okay, well, I'm here to talk to you about the uh, Mars Science Laboratory and the Curiosity rover. I'm gonna try to keep, uh, keep moving along. I have a tendency to be a little long-winded on the subject, as you might imagine, so uh, I'll, I'll try to get through it and, uh, and leave some time at the end for uh, questions and answers. Um, so I thought I'd start, though, with the, an attempt to answer the question: Why, why go to Mars uh, at all? Um, and there's there are a number of reasons. I think um, you know, in the late 19th century, um, a number of amateur astronomers were peering through their uh, fairly rudimentary um, optical telescopes and looking at Mars, thinking they saw canals, and uh, that, of course, began the era of H.G. Wells, War of the Worlds, and Invasions from Mars, and Buck Rogers, and uh, Ray Bradbury, and the Martian Chronicles, and so on and so forth. Um, But eventually, you know, the the telescopes got better, and our science instruments got better, and we flew some spacecraft past the the planet, and we started to learn a little bit more about it. It got to the point where we recognized, of course, that there were no, there was no life, uh, at least uh, not life uh, like us on, on Mars. And yet, it still held the imagination you know, of, of the science community and, and much of the public. And I think one of the reasons is Mars is not that unlike the Earth. It's a rocky planet, unlike the giant gas planets of the outer solar system. And in that way, it's similar to our own planet. It's uh, the, the inclination of, or the tilt of its axis is actually almost exactly like that of, of the Earth. It's got a 24-hour day, or very close to 24-hour day. Uh, much like, much like our own planet, it has seasons, it has poles, um, and a diurnal cycle, much, much like our own. So there's a, there's a lot of similarities, and we have come uh, to appreciate the fact uh, even more so uh, that that Mars in Mars, the surface environment on Mars um, was much like our own planet at one point in its history, uh, and so for those reasons. It's continued to be a target for our scientific uh, and, and exploration missions. Uh, in the mid-1990s, uh, this rock over here on the lower left-hand side, uh, Allen Hills 84001, it's an asteroid that was picked up in uh, the Antarctic, and um, it was determined uh, by the mid-1990s or so, or late mid to late 1990s, uh, to have originated on on Mars, and uh, uh, many tens or hundreds of millions of years ago, um, was uh, uh, ca- came off the planet and eventually landed in the Antarctic. And inside this rock, um, there were certain signatures that you can see up here in the top left, um, associated potentially uh, with. Uh, Uh, organics and and biosignatures. And so the the debate uh, began. Could there have been uh, ancient microbial life on Mars at at some point in its history? And that fueled the the modern exploration uh, cycle for Mars, which began on July 4th, 1997 with this mission. This is the first mission uh, Mars mission I worked on, uh, and it carried a small 25-pound rover called Sojourner, seen here, cocooned inside this set of airbags. Uh, the mission was designed to demonstrate a low-cost uh, and, and a reliable mechanism for landing on the surface. You'd see a picture taken from the rover looking back at the lander uh, and the ramp that it had driven over, uh, on top of the deflated airbags. It was a very successful mission, but it carried only about five kilograms of science uh, equipment with it. Uh, and so it was very limited. It was designed only, the rover's only designed the last seven days. It lasted about three months, but eventually succumbed to the, um, to the Martian winter. Uh, and so in 2003, we launched uh, another set of spacecraft. These might be a little more familiar to you. These is, this is uh, Spirit and Opportunity, seen here with its uh, uh, progenitor, uh, uh, the Sojourner Rover. And as you can see, these two vehicles were much larger. Uh, and in this, uh, with this kind of a platform, we were capable of carrying about 50 kilograms of, um, of science equipment. Sorry, about 50 pounds of science equipment to the surface of Mars. Uh, And the objective of this mission really was to follow the water, to determine whether or not um, there could have been, at some point, surface water uh, on uh, on Mars. And when we landed, uh, the first first spacecraft landed in a place called Gusev Crater. The second one landed at a place called Meridiani. Um, Both of these sites were chosen by uh, looking at science data that came off our orbiters. Uh, And we were uncertain as to what we were going to find in each case. However, as soon as we landed the second mission, Opportunity, uh, in a little crater called Eagle Crater, and we started taking imagery of this crater, we could see uh, bedrock over here. And it turns out that um, these rocks, when uh, when we got a little closer with the rover and got some, some pictures, Uh, Were pretty clearly sedimentary rocks, and they had certain accretions, uh, hematite accretions, in them that was indicative of a aqueous process. Uh, And so, um, essentially, uh, this mission, Spirit and Opportunity, um, demonstrated that at one time Mars could have looked very much like this, uh, with the surface, with the type of surface water that we see here. Uh, in, in oceans and lakes and, and uh, that type of thing. And we know that life on Earth requires three things, basically, it requires energy, which we get from the sun, as, as does Mars. It requires water, which Spirit and Opportunity now had pretty unequivocally demonstrated existed on the surface of Mars at one point. And the third thing it, it, uh, it's, that's required is carbon, uh, and that's where this mission comes in, Enter Curiosity. This is the rover that uh, is on its way to Mars and will be landing in about three weeks. As you can see, uh, it's quite a bit larger than, its, uh, uh, than Spirit, Opportunity, and, and Sojourner. Uh, weighs in at about one ton. Uh, and uh, it can fairly easily, with its arm up in the air, touch, a, touch the basketball rim. Uh, at 10 feet in the air. Uh, it carries, unlike, as I mentioned before, Spirit and Opportunity carried about 50 pounds. This carries almost 500 pounds of scientific instruments and, uh, and sampling systems and observational systems. And so it is far more capable uh, than anything we've ever landed on, on Mars. Now, getting something this size onto the surface of Mars is not an easy thing to do. Uh, as you might imagine. Actually getting almost anything to the surface of Mars is not necessarily an easy thing to do. And so uh, it requires us to put it inside a spacecraft and uh, to launch that spacecraft and to successfully land that spacecraft. And what I'd like to do is orient you a little bit um, with the spacecraft and the engineering systems of the spacecraft. And then I'm going to show you a quick animation and give you a sense of how this whole thing is supposed to go on August, August 6th. So, here's the rover. As you can see, uh, in its stowed position, uh, we break the mobility system. It lays pretty flat. It allows it to, to fit reasonably well inside the entry capsule here. This is the top of the entry capsule, what we call the back shell, and this is the heat shield, which absorbs the, uh, uh, the entry heating uh, environment. Uh, attached to the rover, or the rover is attached to, Uh, something we call the descent stage. The descent stage is a part of the system that flies out the last uh, uh, kilometer or so of of, uh, descent down onto the surface of Mars. And it has the propulsion systems and navigation and control systems necessary to put the rover down on the surface. Up on the top is the cruise stage. This is something that's that we uh, discard as we're getting ready to enter the outer atmosphere, but it has a number of the systems that help us get from Earth to Mars. And so what I'm going to do is show you a quick animation, give you a sense of how this system should work uh, and is working, and, and then I'll talk in a little more detail about the system itself. So I need to swap over. So here you see the spacecraft on top of the second stage of the Atlas vehicle. Um, we it essentially gets us pointed in the right direction. It gives us enough C3, C3 to exit the, the gravity well of the Earth. Uh, and it spins us up to about two revolutions per minute. And then the spacecraft sitting on the top here separates and it's on its way uh, to Mars at this point. We spin to maintain the stability of the system um, during cruise. It's about a. Uh, about an eight-month cruise um, to get to Mars. We're almost there. As I said, we're only about three weeks away from landing at this point. The uh, During the cruise phase, we go through a number of trajectory correction maneuvers. By the time we get to Mars, after having traveled 350 million miles, we've actually hit a spot on the, outside, on the outer atmosphere of Mars. It's about one kilometer. Uh, in, uh, in a perimeter of about one kilometer. And as you can see, we've discharged uh, uh, the cruise stage and we're now, uh, this is the entry capsule entering the outer atmosphere. We're firing the thrusters to orient ourselves during the hypersonic guidance period. At this point, we're traveling about 17,000 miles an hour relative to, to Mars. The heat shield's absorbing most of that kinetic energy. It can get to about 3,800 degrees Fahrenheit during this period. Again, we continue to fire these thrusters. What we, we have a lifting body, it's a mass offset body, and by rolling the body left and right, we can actually guide ourselves through that phase of the entry. We fire off some ballast mass, straighten ourselves up, and at a speed of about Mach 2, we, uh, we deploy the parachute. After the parachute is uh, deployed, the heat shield comes off, we turn on our radar, we start trying to get a ground surface solution, uh, and as we get about a kilometer from the ground, we release the power descent uh, vehicle. Power descent vehicle has both the rover and the descent stage on it. Uh, At this point, we're still traveling at about 1,000 miles an hour. We drop uh, about 200 miles an hour, sorry, and we drop down to about two miles an hour before we touch down on the surface of Mars. So the descent stage is taking out the rest of that velocity. And in a moment, what you're going to see is a move we call uh, the sky crane. Sky crane is a unique part of this landing system, where the rover will actually separate from the descent stage. It's modeled after the heavy lift helicopters that you've probably seen before carrying the large payloads. And it gives us a couple of unique capabilities that we didn't have inside the airbags. In particular, the ability to land this much mass. So as we touch down, the compliance in this bridle here, it's about a 21-foot bridle, gives us a few critical moments to understand that we have touchdown before we cut the bridle. The descent stage then flies off uh, and crashes, essentially. And the rover is ready to go on the surface for the most part. We need to do some deployments, raise the mast, uh, but unlike previous missions, one of the advantages of this particular landing system uh, is that we're quickly, we're on our wheels. Uh, there's no pedals that need to unfold. There's no airbags that need to be deflated. There's no lander system that we need to drive off of. And, uh, and so that reduces the inherent risk after landing of getting the mission going. So that's essentially how uh, the system is uh, designed to operate and what i'd like to do is spend a few minutes uh, showing you some of the hardware this is the full spacecraft uh, in the thermal vacuum chamber Uh, it's uh, the the diameter of the entry capsule is about four and a half meters i will talk some more about that in a minute this is the top of the crew stage that's the element that you saw um, separate just prior to Mars entry. So you can see we, we have solar rays that drive the, provide the power for most of the trip to Mars. This is a launch vehicle adapter. And then if I flip this upside down, what you see on the bottom of the cruise stage is uh, some tanks uh, as well as electronics, thrusters, uh, that type of thing, as well as some star scanners and, and sun sensors. This is the top of the, uh, of the entry vehicle, or what we call the aeroshell. Uh, this is the back shell um, in, during uh, assembly. As you can see, there are a number of different um, uh, uh, holes here and doors for different, mostly for assembly purposes. These up here are where the thrusters for hypersonic guidance uh, protrude uh, through, the top of the, through the top of the back shell. Some people uh, aren't quite, don't have a quite, uh, you know, a very good sense of scale for this, uh, for this system, and so we took this. (laughs) Somebody once asked us, "What can you fit inside this, um, inside this entry capsule?" And uh, somebody calculated uh, that we could fit a a Mini Cooper. And so, after assembly of the back shell, we actually took it outside and put it over a Mini Cooper, just to fact to prove that we could get a car inside this thing. This is the heat shield. Uh, it is, as I said, about a 15-foot heat shield. Uh, it is the, the entry capsule itself is the largest entry capsule ever flown. It's quite a bit larger, actually, than Apollo. It's larger than Viking. It's almost double the size of our previous Mars missions. Uh, and so it's, um, it was a real challenge to assemble and to test this particular part of the vehicle, but it was what required to get the uh, full mission down. This is the heat shield. With its, um, with its protective tile. Much like the shuttle has a tile to protect it from heating during entry, our heat shield uses a phenolic impregnated carbon ablator. Uh, and that's what, these, uh, that's what these tiles are for. This is our parachute. It's the largest parachute we've ever built. It's about 70 feet or so across in diameter. It's being tested in this particular um, picture in the largest wind tunnel in the world at Ames Research Center in uh, California. Just to give you a sense of scale, this is a human being over here. This is the descent stage, uh, which I mentioned before, provides the, the propulsive capability during the last part of the uh, entry, descent, and landing system. Uh, this is really uh, a spacecraft almost unto itself, and what I have here is a, a quick uh, 360 tour. Which will take you around the descent stage. Actually, the rover in this particular picture, you can see the rover mounted up underneath it. You can see our main engines. There's eight. There are eight of these uh, 4,000 newton engines. They're derived from Viking, actually, which was one of the, the, our first Mars <laughs> lander. Uh, and uh, up here, you can see some uh, inertial reference uh, units (IMUs) uh, as well as some additional uh, control electronics. There's propulsion tanks and uh, pressurant tanks. Uh, and you can see the thrusters up here that poke up through the, uh, the top of the back shell that provide the hypersonic uh, guidance control capability. Over here, it's, it's blanketed up. but It's our pulse Doppler radar. I'll show you another picture of it, uh, which is critical for the Skycrane landing system to success, successfully land on the wheels. Uh, and again, coming back around to our avionics bay, which is where most of our uh, computational motor drive and power distribution systems exist. So, quick tour of the descent stage. This is a unique, this is something we had never attempted to build before and it's really, um, it, was, it was quite a challenge to build the, the structure and to integrate uh, all of this equipment on uh, onto the vehicle. This is looking up uh, at the uh, at the descent stage up here with the rover on the bridle uh, in, in the foreground. Uh, you can see the robot arm on the front of, of the rover here to keep you oriented. Obviously the wheels. Uh, these are the six beams of the, the pulse Doppler radar that I mentioned before. Uh, this was a brand new development for us. Um, as you can imagine, the success of the mission really depends on us getting our velocities down to a point where Uh, It's safe to land on the wheels. And so this radar had to be extremely capable. You know, it's uh, the accuracy of the system, uh, even at 11 uh, 11 kilometers above the surface is uh, uh, remarkable. You know, it's on the order of meters uh, for altitude and it's uh, a couple, a handful of meters per second in velocity. And so uh, very capable, very capable system. This is the top of the, the rover. You can see our mast. This is our imaging mast actually stowed uh, for, for launch along the top. Uh, these are small inlets in the chassis. Um, the, some, of the, some, uh, some of the more critical science instruments sit inside the chassis below these, um, below these inlets. And the rover system is designed to actually core, uh, not to core, to, uh, to sample rocks. Uh, and to put that sample into these analytical instruments inside the vehicle. And so we have a a, uh, percussive rotary coring system on the end of the robot arm. First time we've ever attempted uh, to do that. Uh, And so uh, uh, another particular challenge uh, on the rover. You can see this differential that runs across the top of the vehicle, which connects the port and starboard uh, mobility systems. This is the end of the robot arm. It's, uh, it has, as I mentioned before, this uh, rotary percussive drill. Uh, the idea is to get inside the outer layers of the Martian rocks. Uh, since the outer surfaces were exposed to the, uh, the radiation environment of Mars, the science community wanted to get behind those outer layers and drill actually into the rocks. And it became a real engineering challenge to figure out how to do that from 100 million miles away reliably. Uh, and, but uh, we ended up with this uh, this drill that sits here. We also have a, a sieving and portioning system here that provides the small amount of sample to the instruments, as well as three different uh, contact instruments out here on the end of the robot arm. The whole turret weighs uh, about 30 kilograms, or about 70 pounds or so. Uh, the, just the turret alone uh, actually uh, uh, it weighs more than all the science instruments on, on Spirit and Opportunity. If you flip the rover over and you take the belly pan off, this is what you would see. This is all the electronics that need to main, we need to, uh, need to be maintained in a thermally controlled environment. And so we have our computers, our power distribution systems, our telecommunication systems, our motor drive electronics. Um, and, and all the body-mounted uh, instruments as, as well. Uh, one of the critical instruments is this one here. This is the large analytical instrument that we call SAM. Uh, this is the one that's in particular designed to look for those organics, uh, those carbon compounds, which I mentioned before, that third leg of the life triangle. And um, this instrument alone would not have fit into either the Spirit or Opportunity chassis. And so it gives you a sense of the the size of of this vehicle. Uh, Curiosity carries uh, 10 different instruments. I mentioned um, SAM down here, which is the analytical laboratory. It has a number of other instruments which are body mounted uh, for chemical analysis as well as uh, to monitor the radiation environment. Uh, we have a, a Russian uh, uh, Neutron emission um, instrument, which is designed to look for subsurface uh, ice, actually. We have a descent imager. We'll get pictures as we're coming down from the rover of the surface for, for contacts, as well as just because it's gonna be a cool looking picture <laughs> to share with everybody. Um, we, have, uh, we have a couple instruments out here uh, on the arm. And then there are three mounted up on the, on the mast, as well. One of the instruments that we have I'll mention is this, uh, is this laser. And uh, it's, it's, we call it the death ray. <laughs> but it's designed to essentially um, uh, create a plasma that, if fire the laser, it creates a small plasma cloud on the at the target. That plasma ca- cloud is then imaged by a spectrometer, and we can imp- essentially gives a standoff remote capability of understanding what the chemical nature of some of the the rocks are. That allows us to to quickly assess the rocks that we're interested in, uh, and not waste time driving up to approaching, putting the arm on uh, rocks that, for instance, uh, may not. Be of particular interest to the science community, so it's a it's a nice remote sensing capability. As you might imagine, um, we spend a lot of time uh, testing uh, this system, and in particular, as I said before, uh, when we moved away from the airbag systems and in, into the Sky Crane system, uh, we had to come up with a lot of um, a lot of unique uh, verification paths. Uh, for this. We can't fly to Mars without spending an awful lot of money and it's a it's a hard thing to do on on the earth but we do the best we can to replicate the environment and to test the system to make sure it will safely touch down. Uh, And so what I thought I'd do is show you just a couple um, uh, clips from some of this touchdown testing uh, that we did. This is a, a vehicle we call the scarecrow as you can tell it's not fully loaded uh, but it's about the right mass for, uh, for Mars, roughly speaking. And so it's hooked to a crane, a real crane, uh, in this particular case. And what we do is we're dropping it. This is a real-time video. It gives you a sense of about how fast the vehicle is going to come down on Mars. Without the bang, hopefully. <laughs> So that didn't look too bad on a flat surface. So we said, hey, maybe we better do a few more uh, aggressive cases. And so we built up the vehicle. Uh, We built up another vehicle that has higher fidelity. We created some, uh, put it it on a 20 degree incline, put some rocks, dug a trench, and took a look at how the vehicle would respond to these types of uh, boundary case environments as well. And the vehicle does very well. It's uh, it's a... uh, the system itself, as you can imagine, is designed to traverse across a fairly aggressive surface environment on Mars. And, and the, the concept behind Skycrane was to use that to our advantage, not replicate that with landing legs and other things. Essentially, use the mobility system and the compliance in the mobility system uh, to safely touch down. And, and the, the concept is, has tested out very well. It's very mass efficient. And the rover behaves, um, does very well in, in these types of uh, landing conditions. It's actually more capable. The the slope and the rock density and the rock heights uh, that this system can tolerate is substantially better than our previous missions. Uh, and so it it allows us to get to certain places on Mars that we couldn't get before. And I'll show you some some pictures of what I mean here in a bit. This is another Sky Crane test. In this particular case. Uh, the idea was to test the deployment of the mo- mobility system. After the rover separates from the descent stage, the mobility system has to deploy. And as that mobility system deploy, it creates loads, as you might imagine, back into the structure that ripple back up, actually into the bridle into this, and into the controller of the, of the sky crane system itself. And so we went through a fairly extensive uh, integrated test, what we call the full motion test. Uh, to simulate the rover deployment and the mobility deploy, as you can see, there's no wheels on this mobility system, and again, that's to replicate the roughly 38% of uh, of the of the Earth gravity that we have on Mars to get the loading and the mass uh, uh, the mass rate for this particular. This is what it would look like if you were Martian standing looking at this thing coming down at you. So, uh, pretty pretty exciting. I know what you're thinking, sounds like you guys do a lot of cool things. Um, And we do, we do a lot of cool things. But uh, do we get to blow things up? That's, I'm sure, one of the questions you have for me. And so here's the answer. Yes, we get to blow things up. This is a a parachute deployment test, actually. We're launching the parachute out of uh, using the largest mortar ever fired. This is a slow-speed, slow uh, high-resolution image of the, of the parachute coming out of its canister. And here's the shot of the full parachute being deployed in that wind tunnel that I mentioned before. You can see it takes a little while for it to open. On Mars, traveling at Mach 2, however, this will open in less than a second. Come on. There we go. There's the canopy opening up. It's, it's uh, agonizing when you watch this uh, in real time. Uh, hoping that the parachute's gonna open in the wind tunnel uh, and that you're not gonna have a failure. But on Mars, as I said, it's gonna open almost instantaneously because of the speeds we're traveling at. And it absorbs uh, an impact or an impulse of almost 60,000 pounds as part of the inflation loads. Largest parachute we've ever built. uh, It's a disc gap band uh, parachute. You can see the, the gap here. Uh, between this uh, band and and the disc on top. Uh, That's for control for additional uh, stability of the system. Uh, This is a picture of the rover going through a a mass properties test. Uh, For all of our systems, we have to understand exactly where the center of gravity is and what the uh, properties of inertia are. Inertia are. And so um, we we put all of them on spin tables or on turnover fixtures. Uh, This happens to be the the rover uh, on a uh, vertical position getting tested. Uh, This is the rover over here on the right-hand side of this picture. Uh, We're doing some imaging testing here. You can see all the targets and the lights set up. We have 17 different cameras on the vehicle, Uh, science cameras, navigation cameras, hazard avoidance cameras, descent cameras. We have a microscope out on the end of the robot arm. Uh, And so it takes a lot of work to get all of those uh, cameras both geometrically and uh, radiometrically calibrated. And so we spend a lot of time uh, pre-launch doing that, that type of thing. Uh, this is a shot of the uh, of the first drive test that we ran on the vehicle. Uh, now, when I talk to the kids, they're always disappointed that the rover doesn't drive faster. <laughs> but I tell them it's like the tortoise in the air, You know, eventually it gets there. It does just fine. Um, but it only it only moves at about uh, six centimeters a second. Uh, that's about the same speed as our previous vehicles have traveled it's uh, less than a tenth of a mile per hour, to give you some sense of how fast that is. But that's okay, because obviously, we're doing a couple things. One is we're not traveling that far every day on Mars. We, we just want to get generally from one place uh, beyond our local uh, region so we can see what's around us. Uh, and so it's, it's, uh, it's, more, it's capable of traveling over 100 meters a day, despite the relatively so s- slow speed, we also need to be very aware of our power usage. This this uh, this vehicle is not powered by solar rays. It's powered by a, a, a thermoelectric um, generator, and so um, the uh, the amount of power that we have available to us is about 100 watts. That's how much the the radioisotope thermoelectric generator generates, about the you know about the power of a light bulb in your house. And so we have to be pretty fastidious about how we use that energy, and uh, that's one of the reasons we drive relatively slowly as well. It's a um, it's a six-wheel vehicle, uh, just like our previous systems. It has a rocker bogey suspension system, capable of driving over um, uh, hazards that are a couple feet high. Uh, it's a very uh, stable platform, and it's a very uh, it's actually a very capable climber. So um, it's a st- strong system. This is uh, some, uh, some footage of arm testing. Now, in this particular case, the arm moves so slowly that we've, we've speeded it up here, as you can see, by a factor of about six. And in this case, we're using a, um, an, uh, a substitute turret out here in the end of the arm. It doesn't have all the mass. Again, for mass reasons, um, it doesn't have all the mass that the, that the, flight, the flight turret would have. Here we're doing some tilt testing on the flight vehicle. Uh, it's designed to operate on slopes up to thirty degrees. Although we try to avoid slopes that are that high because we do have a tendency to to slip, um, and uh, and so it's uh, it's been well tested. This is some uh, 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 this is a picture of. Of um, some testing that we did for the radar system, as I mentioned before, the radar is a brand new system, and it's critical for to ensure that we land at a speed that the system's capable of, of absorbing when we touch down. And so, to simulate the last uh, few meters of the Sky Crane um, of this of the Sky Crane delivery system. Uh, we hang a sort of simulated, a partial rover out here below a, a helicopter. This is actually a movie helicopter with a, uh, a gimbal on the front where they would normally mount uh, a movie camera for those action, you know, footage shots. In Los Angeles, we have a lot of these things. It <laughs> turns out. So um, uh, what we mounted was our our, our radar on the front, and, what, and we took it out into the desert and we did uh, simulated sky crane testing. For a number, to see how the radar performed, um, to see what the the radar return signature looked like from the the vehicle, for instance, when it's hanging down below uh, the descent stage, uh, and and that sort of thing. For the upper portions of the entry descent uh, um, activities, as I said before, be- at at uh, at parachute deploy after parachute deploy, we're still moving at about a thousand ish miles an hour, and we're still pretty high off the ground. We can't simulate those kind of vertical velocities in a helicopter, and so uh, we put the radar inside a pod sitting out here under the wing of this F-18, uh, and we took it up and, and, uh, and allowed the F-18 to simulate the entry, descent, and landing uh, profile, landing profile that we needed to test the radar. This is a picture of the rover uh, in a thermal vacuum chamber. As as you uh, might imagine, we go to, uh, we do everything we can to simulate the Mars surface environment to, and to test the vehicle in an appropriate environment. So we put it inside our 25-foot thermal vacuum chamber. We have a solar simulator. Uh, that's what this guy is doing. He's calibrating the solar uh uh, this, the solar simulation, which is a columnated light source, comes down onto the vehicle, um, and uh, then we close. After we get this guy out, we close up the chamber, we pump it down, and we uh, and we flood the shrouds with liquid nitrogen and we cool cool it down. One of the challenges we have on all of, all of our surface systems is to deal with the thermal environment on on Mars. The the days actually the summer days can get reasonably balmy, you know, to about 20 degrees Celsius or so in the middle of the day if you're sitting at the right spot. And uh, maybe wearing black, I don't know. But if, uh, but at night, even during the summer, the temperature drops dramatically down. Uh, during the winter months at some of the latitudes we were designed to operate at, uh, the temperature gets down uh, essentially to the freezing point of uh, the carbon dioxide atmosphere. And so it's minus 130 degrees Celsius. And every day, pretty much, you go through this thermal cycle. And as you all can well imagine, that is a, a very stressing environment for a lot of our materials, clearly for our electronics. Um, and, and, uh, and so we do a lot of testing to verify, in fact, uh, and a lot of design work. To, to show that our systems are capable of those types of uh, those types of thermal cycles over a long duration, long period of time. Uh, and so that's part of the testing that we did uh, in the chamber. This is a, a, a sky crane test uh, as we call it. In this particular test we we're, um, were assessing the robustness of the vehicle to Uh, EMI, our electromagnetic interference. Um, As we're, after the rover is deployed, and actually before the rover is deployed, we've got telecommunication systems, both X-band systems uh, and UHF systems uh, transmitting. I mentioned before we have a K-band radar, and of course we generate a lot of electronics noise um, inside the control systems and, and power systems as well. And so one of the things we, we uh, were very careful about is to verify, in fact, that we're compatible with ourselves from an electromagnetic perspective. This is a particularly difficult, particularly challenging task, in part because of this bridle. This bridle is not only mechanical, but it's electrical as well. The brains of the system sit down here in the rover. And so all the control signals uh, up to the descent stage are sent through an electrical uh, bridle that that connects the two, and many of our sensors, our radar, for instance, and in our IMU up here, provide critical data that has to come down uh, to the rover during entry, descent, and landing. And so, any corruption of that data, of course, could be um, could be fatal. And so, we spent a lot of time doing this type of testing in multiple different configurations to verify, in fact, that uh, that we have. Uh, a system that will perform as we expect. I always show this picture because I just like it, though. <laughs> Eventually, we did finish testing uh, the system. And uh, we put it in a uh, military cargo plane. And we flew it down to uh, Kennedy Space Center. Uh, it was about 13, 14 months ago, I guess, is when we shipped the rover in the descent stage uh, down to the system. We reassembled the entire spacecraft, actually, down there. Uh, and we integrated it on top of the Atlas, uh, and we launched it uh, in late November of, of last year. Um, the, the cruise so far has gone uh, very well. I mentioned we've gone through a number of instrument checkouts, uh, engineering hardware checkouts, uh, entry, descent, and landing system checkouts. Um, we've we've uh, executed a number of trajectory correction maneuvers to get us... Uh, into the right spot so that we can hit our target on Mars. Uh, And so uh, we've uploaded the final software just over the last uh, some number of weeks for entry, descent, and landing. And so we're at a point now where we think we're pretty much ready to go. Uh, The whole entry, descent, and landing activity from the time you hit the outer atmosphere to the time you're on the ground is about seven minutes long. Light time for Mars is about 13 minutes. <laughs> so there's, there's no controlling this system. It's on its own. It's completely autonomous. And, uh, and this is certainly the most challenging part of the mission coming up in three weeks. And uh, we're, all, we're all looking forward to it. Where are we going? Um, the, this is where some of the previous uh, NASA missions uh, have landed. Uh, Curiosity is going over here. To a reasonably equatorial site called uh, Gale Crater. Uh, this is a picture of it. You can see the outer rim, actually, of the crater, and in the middle there's this kind of mountain. Um, one of the things the scientists like to do is to find the stratigraphic records, if you will, on on Mars. In other words, they want to see they want to see the vertical history of of the planet by looking at exposed cliffs or exposed crater walls and those sorts of things and so um, when we started looking for a landing site um, the craters were of particular interest uh, to the to the science community uh, but the mountains were also of interest to the science So you got you know we want a crater we want a mountain we found a place we had both actually this is as I said it's a, a crater with a, a mountain in the middle of it and what essentially happened billions, a couple billion years ago is, uh, is an impact crater that eventually over the course of time um, filled in, uh, filled in probably with sedimentary uh, material. And then portions of that, um, of that material were then eroded away uh, leaving this, this mound in the center. And so we are landing here in this relatively small uh, landing ellipse and then the idea is, after a period of time of checking out the engineering systems, that we would begin a tour um, up the slopes of uh, Mount Sharp. and start looking for the type of science um, targets that the community is particularly interested in. Now, this is the first. I think I mentioned briefly that as we're in the hypersonic phase of entry, we have the ability to actually steer the spacecraft. Um, It's mass offset, so it's essentially a lifting body as we're coming in. And then the thrusters roll that lifting body to the left or counterclockwise or clockwise, if you will, to bank the system and essentially steer it in to a targeted landing site. And by doing that, we are able to reduce the size of the landing lips from our previous missions. This is a landing lips from the Viking mission. This is the Pathfinder Sojourner mission here. Uh, you can see Spirit and Opportunity. This was the landing ellipse. Um, the uncertainty band, if you will, for landing those two missions. But to get to some place like Gale, where you have this, this rim, which is clearly um, a, hazardous, uh, a, a hazardous object to, to be avoided, as well as the mountain, another hazardous object to be avoided. Um, we had to really improve the landing capability of the system, and, and that's why we do the guided entry and the propulsive descent uh, on, the, on the sky crane. Uh, our landing ellipse is about, well you can see it, 19 kilometers by about uh, seven kilometers. The downrange is always a little harder to control than, than the cross range. Um, but we have, uh, we have good confidence uh, that we're going to land inside the ellipse, and it wouldn't surprise me to get pretty darn close to the center actually. Once we land, um, as I mentioned before, there's there's an area in the basin down here that looks like an alluvial fan to many of the science community. And so we'll, uh, we'll likely spend some time uh, looking at that area down here, uh, and then start making our way up the side of the mountain. Uh, in particular, there's a, a number of clays. Um, Clay obviously forms in in the presence of water, and water, as I said before, is one of the keys to to life. And so the the science community want to look at these phyllosilicates and clays that are located down at towards the base of of uh, Mount Sharp, and we'll probably spend quite a bit of time uh, down there. Eventually, we'll work our way up to areas where they see salts and and some sulfate compounds as well. Uh, and so that's the uh, uh, that's where we're headed. So uh, I, uh, I went through that very quickly uh, in an effort to leave some time for questions and answers. Um, but um, uh, just to finish off here, um, I thought it'd be nice to show you a, a picture of the sort of three generations of, of Mars Rover with this handsome fellow standing right there uh, behind him. Uh, it's, uh, it's been a, a very challenging development cycle for this particular mission. Putting a ton down on the surface of Mars is, is not an easy thing to do. Um, but we're about to hit uh, the payoff period, obviously, with the landing coming up in, in three weeks and we're all pretty excited. So I hope you all can tune in. Uh, early in the morning of August 6th, uh, we'll be uh, landing at Gale Crater. So thank you very much.